born by the Word of God, or what if you got to go and sit front row of a concert of your favorite band? Well, you know what you should do, right? <laughs> so, so what's a higher priority? Letting the Word of God transform you or front row your favorite band? What, what should be our priority? Don Split, what should our priority be, buddy? The Word of God, huh? So if we can get front row to hear the Word of God and change our life, shouldn't we take front row seats? All right. Guess what? We have a front row. Nobody's even sitting in it. Who's got the heart? I want to see this. I'm not starting to this rose filled. Front row. Front row. All right, great job. Front row seats. Could be a Christian band. All right, you guys hear me all right? Is this thing working? Yeah, it is working. Okay, good. All right, here's what we're going to study tonight. What's our topic been for the last month and a half, two months? The Holy Spirit. You know, what I've realized is we had Gordon Ferguson, who is the, uh, the consummate uh, teacher on the Holy Spirit. Uh, he did a great lesson for us on a Sunday. But you know what I realized we haven't taught you is sort of the doctrinal teaching of how we receive the Spirit. And uh, there's a lot of conflict in the religious world about this, on, on the reception of the Holy Spirit and the different aspects of the Holy Spirit. And I will put before you, it is a complex topic. There is a lot in the scriptures about it. And in fact, the wisest theologians, uh, both part of our fellowship and outside of it, uh, don't always totally agree exactly on the details. I'm going to present to you today my conviction, and um, I hope it educates and trains you and gets you thinking. I won't be able to hit every detail, every question today. But I will hit a few of the key questions that I know come up for some of us when we're studying with people. And I hope this uh, encourages you to dig deeper, begin to ask these questions, and to really evaluate, wow, you know, how do we receive the Holy Spirit? What about all the different accounts of the reception of the Holy Spirit and how they're different in some cases? And how does that really fit into our teaching of when we become a Christian and when we don't? And so that's what I want to cover today. So I hope you have a piece of paper and a pen handy. So you, you need to get that on out so you can take some notes and write down some scripture references. So I'm going to give you a minute to find one, get one, borrow one, pull out your little uh, note. If you have to do it on your phone, a lot of those can do it. If you have a notepad and a Bible, sometimes little notes on your phone are good too. If you have your laptop or your iPad, pull it on out. We're going to talk today about the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about the different receptions of the Holy Spirit. Uh, or you could call them measures or uh Ways that we see the Holy Spirit working. And there's been different teachings on that. The first thing I want to begin by reading to you is Ezekiel chapter 36, which we've read twice already. I used it in one of my sermons. Mike used it in one of his. But it's in, of course, the Old Testament where God is predicting what he has in store with his Holy Spirit and our lives in particular. So turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 25. And we're going to move quick. Tonight is more of a teaching. So if you're way in the back, you know, you know I, I reckon if you really want to learn this material, you, you, you need to stay focused. You've got to move up front. You know, you sit in the back, it's easy to zone out. All right? 
But we're going to hit material that you're going to need to teach your friends. you got friends. There's a lot of false teachings about the Holy Spirit out there. And we're going to hit some of this. You need to be focused, geared in, understanding what does the Bible say about it. Amen? All right, verse 36, verse 25. We find there, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols, right? And that he's referencing, it's a foreshadowing of baptism right there in the, the new covenant. We know we saw Alicia and we saw Diana baptized on Sunday also. It was awesome in the campus. Really proud of her. And uh, God's just working, right? Sprinkling that clean water on new souls as they give themselves to God. He goes on and talks about the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, right? The Holy Spirit. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Isn't that encouraging? And what he's talking about is the, the prediction of the Holy Spirit being inside of us, us being one with God. Having the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God Himself, one with our Spirit. That's an awesome promise. And we find that in the New Testament, we teach each of our young people and everybody that studies the Bible, we teach them clearly the first Sunday morning sermon when Jesus had ascended to the right hand of the Father and He left the message of how we're all going to follow Him and respond to the cross. He left it in the hands of His apostles. And they begin the church, we find in Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church. And we find that the Holy Spirit comes down in a a great powerful way in Acts chapter 2. Right? It's the day of Pentecost. And he comes down, we're going to talk a little bit about that outpouring in a moment. But I want to make it clear to you that the the scriptures teach us in the first Sunday morning sermon, uh, preached to all those that are going to live in the same situation that we're in, which is what? The situation where Jesus has died, he's resurrected, and he's ascended, which is where he's at now, right? He's in heaven right now. He's watching and listening. In Acts 2, they are in the same shoes as we're in. He's died, he's resurrected, and he's ascended. And the message of how to be saved and the message of how to get that spirit in us is preached the first time right here by Peter. And we summarize his lesson in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. And he goes on, and they feel moved by it in verse 37, and we're going to pick up in verse 38, which we all know, Acts 2, verse 38, is a very clear teaching of how we receive forgiveness of sins, and it says the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, so let's see that right here. Remember, this is the blueprint for the church that we are a part of today. And he says in Acts 2, verse 38, After they ask him, well, what do we do with respect to this lesson and who Jesus is? We believe it. We want to respond. And so he tells them in verse 38, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Year 2012. For all whom the Lord our God will call. We receive the Holy Spirit when we repent and are baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. You see that right there? We know this. We'll reference these other verses. Look in Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Uh, We see that, you know, who gets the Holy Spirit? Well, it says in verse 32 of Acts 5, you can go over there, a couple chapters. 
he says, <clears throat> and we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. All right. So we know he, he gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. Now, the truth is the Holy Spirit can work on people. All right. Even when they don't obey him. But it clearly says he gives it to us when we obey him. How? Repentance and baptism. All right. Also, we find that in Galatians chapter three, the idea of being clothed with Christ and having the spirit is referenced there. Let's look in Galatians chapter three. All right. And write this down and skip with me over Galatians three, verse twenty six. Galatians 3, verse 26, where he says there, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You've received the Holy Spirit, you're baptized into Christ, you've clothed yourself with Christ. That's a reference again to the baptism that Jesus commanded in, in Matthew chapter 28, that, he, that Peter commanded in Acts chapter 2. And uh, we find that, you know, you have the Spirit, and it is necessary to have the Spirit inside of you for salvation. It needs to be inside of you, one with you, totally unified with you. It's logical. If we have sin, then the Spirit of God can't reside in us because God can't be unified with sin, right? So the death of Jesus pays the price of the sin. So when we go under that water, right, by faith we're believing, okay, Jesus died for us, so we go under that water. And by faith, God says, yes, we see that you're dying also because you have faith my son died, you die, and therefore I'm blaming all your sins on Jesus, and you're going to be a new creation. You're, I'm, wipe, I'm blaming all your sins on him. He's paying for him. He's the only one that could pay for him. Now you're pure in my eyes. If you're pure in my eyes, now God can be one with you, right? So at that moment, you get the Holy Spirit. We find that in Romans. Turn with me to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. That you cannot be a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, look in verse 9. Romans 8, verse 9. Very clear scripture on this. You must... Have the Holy Spirit in you, one with you. And we're going to talk about other aspects of it in a minute. All right, it says, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. You guys see that? So, obviously... When we become a real Christian at our repentance and baptism for forgiveness, at that moment we have the Spirit in us, and we have the Spirit, you know, that's a, it's a testimony. We are God's son, God's daughter, right? We also find that in the classic verse where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he explains how we become a Christian. He brings in this idea of being born of water and the Spirit. Let's turn to John chapter 3, all right? John chapter 3, all right? We, we find again a verse that talks about how we must be born of spirit to enter the kingdom of God, right? Again, confirming that we must have the spirit to be saved, to be a Christian. John 3, and we find in verse, um, let's see, in verse 5. John 3, 5, he says, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. 
All right? We're going to talk a little about this more in a moment here as well. But I want you to see that the Scriptures are clear that we're not a Christian unless we have the Spirit. At the moment we become a Christian, simultaneously is when we get the Holy Spirit. You can't be a Christian and later you get the Holy Spirit in you. It's all happened simultaneously, which is very logical. All right. Um, let's look over in one more verse. It's a great one to see that reference to this idea in Titus chapter 3. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. All right. These are all verses you've got to have in your arsenal uh, about baptism, but as well as the Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 3 is a great verse that references this idea of washing with the Word and with the Holy Spirit. All right, Titus 3, look in verse 5. He says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, right? We don't earn our salvation. It's the grace of God. It's a gift from God. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Well, how did He do it? He saved us through the washing of rebirth, And renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the why we're saved and the why we get the Spirit is what Jesus did for us and our response to it, right? We don't earn it. We're not good enough. Nothing like that. But it's clear he's talking about the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And when does that occur? Acts 2.38, you repent, you're baptized, you get that washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You get the forgiveness of your sins. Now, here's the interesting thing. And I've been studying this. Jack, a lot of you guys know Douglas Jacoby, and he's one of our, our teachers in our fellowship. And I agree with the take he has on this with respect to another verse that demonstrates how we enter the church. All right? I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 We find a verse there that talks about when we enter into the church. All right. And he says that in 1 Corinthians 12. Look in verse. um, We'll we'll begin in verse 12 and we'll read down to verse 13. Okay. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 and 13. Talking about the church, the body. Another name for the, the church is the body of Christ. Right. The body is a unit. Verse 12, he says, though it is made up of many parts and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, in my international, New International Bible, I want you to notice in verse 13. I don't know which version you're reading, but it says, For we were all baptized, it uses the word by one spirit. Or you have a little reference to Greek. They're not totally sure that you have. It could be with one spirit or in one spirit. You see that? We were all baptized in one spirit or with one spirit or by one spirit into one body. And here's what I want to make clear. That at this moment, he's talking about being baptized by the spirit or with the spirit, in the spirit. He's really just referencing this concept of washing and renewal by the Holy Spirit, but he's talking about at your normal baptism. But at your baptism in water, aren't you also being baptized in the Spirit at that moment? I want you to think about this. In John chapter 3, we find that he says you must be born of water and born of the Spirit. Okay, you can go back to that. Let's go back in that verse. Go back to John 3 now. What I want you to see is that our baptism is our baptism in the name of Jesus, forgiveness of sins, but it's also the baptism in and with the Spirit of God at that moment. I want you to see that. Because, see, 
the Bible does talk about how, you know, we, we must be baptized in the Spirit, right? And there's two ways to look at it. One is that the whole world's already been baptized in, in a sense, and I'll explain that in a minute. But for us to really be baptized by Jesus in the Spirit, we must respond to his message. And he even says that in, in John chapter 3, right, where he says, you know, you must be born again. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Right? And he goes on and says, well, how can a man be born when he is old? I tell you the truth. Unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so what he's saying here is that born of water, we, we immediately go, yeah, that's when we're baptized. Born of Spirit. Well, what is that? Also when you're baptized. So baptized in the Spirit. I think 1 Corinthians 12, 13 relates very clearly to John 3. Because when, when are we baptized in the Spirit? At our actual baptism. Elisha baptized in, the, in, you know, in water, but in the Spirit as well at that moment. Because indwelling occurs at that moment. Diana, that just happened to them on Sunday. An awesome event. The same thing that all people from here until the end of the world will have to undergo. All right? So what does this mean? Here's why this is important. Because there are some confusing teachings about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. All right? And here's why. There are other aspects of the Holy Spirit coming upon people that create some confusion in the Scripture. But I want to put before you that the one baptism that all of us undergo is this baptism through repentance, you know, faith in Jesus, repentance, and then we're baptized in the name of Jesus. And at that moment, we're born of water and spirit. We're baptized in water and spirit. God's spirit at that moment infiltrates us. Now, the Bible does talk about a predicted event when the Holy Spirit would be poured out. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Let's turn to um, Acts chapter 1. Turn to Acts chapter 1. All right. Acts chapter 1, we have Jesus talking about this predicted event. And he's actually referencing John the Baptist who talked about this event. And we read in Ezekiel already that God said he's going to put his spirit in us. We also are going to find that he talked about how he's going to pour it out on all people. And here's where we want to explain it a little bit more. All right. Look in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Acts 1, verse 4. He says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. All right. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit's going to come down on them. And in Acts chapter 2, we find that's exactly what happens, right? Turn over to Acts chapter 2, all right? And we find in verse 1 and 2, he says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting, all right? So what happens is the Holy Spirit is poured out in, in, in fulfillment of the prediction that's in the Old Testament and the New, God poured out the Holy Spirit. Peter begins to reference this as he quotes Joel. Look with me further down in Acts chapter 2, and he's explaining what's going on. Look in Acts 2, verse 17. All right, he says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. All right? So, so what's going on? 
the Spirit is poured out in fulfillment to prophecy, and it's poured out on all in a sense of it's on earth now. But it's not unified in spirit with every person. Now, God could choose to put the Spirit on anybody he wanted. Truth is, you know, we find in the Old Testament, sometimes the Holy Spirit was on people who were downright ungodly. We find in 1 Samuel, it's down at the end of the chapter of my notes here about miracles. 1 Samuel uh, chapter 19, verse 18 through 24, talks about how, how Saul, who had gone, gone bad, he'd gone rogue, he was trying to kill David, the Holy Spirit w was on him and working through him, causing him to speak. But that didn't mean he was right with God. Okay, so you've got to be clear. God has examples of the Spirit being upon the whole earth. Every, anybody ever feel like a miracle happened to them when they were a total non-Christian? Anyone ever feel like that happened? Like your car didn't crash? You thought, that's a miracle. The Holy Spirit's working on earth. That doesn't mean people are saved just because the Holy Spirit did a miracle in their lives. We're clear on that. All right? But we do find that God promised from Ezekiel, and then John the Baptist mentioned it, and Jesus mentioned it. Hey, the Holy Spirit's going to come out. It's going to be poured out on all people, all right? But it's not in people until they re respond to repentance and baptism, becoming a disciple, repenting, getting baptized in the name of Jesus. Because that's what he said in Acts 5, verse 32. Who did he give his spirit to on the inside? Those who obey him. You guys with me? All right, now, so let's clarify some things. There's another kind of this pouring out I want to explain to you. One of the big confusions we have is, well, Steve, what about some of these situations in the book of Acts? We see some unique situations. I want to approach one of them now, and that's the example of Cornelius, okay? Cornelius was a devout, God-fearing man. He was praying to God. He was not Jewish, and he's praying to God, and God sends him a vision. He says, go get Peter. He's going to bring you a message of how you can be saved. So turn with over to Acts chapter 10, all right? <coughs> Acts 10. I want to try to explain this to you a little bit, all right? How is this a unique situation? Well, it's this is a very unique situation. Keep in mind, the book of Acts gives us the blueprint of how to become a Christian, and then it gives us the history of the beginning of the church. So you're going you're gonna to get a lot of situations that are historical in nature to help us understand what God was doing and how he established the church. The situation of Cornelius, I believe, is one of those unique situations explaining to us how... Uh, God is approving and showing his approval that all people, whether you're Jew or not, you can become a part of God's spiritual kingdom. Right? And he clarifies that in Acts 10. And we find here, let's look in Acts 10. Um, let's skip on down to verse, let's start in verse um, 39. All right? Acts 10, and let's look down in verse uh, 39. It says, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. He killed him by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, all right, so we're not sure at what point he was saying all these words. Wow. Could have been in the beginning. We find actually in Acts 11 we're to find that maybe he didn't even finish that sentence that we just got done reading. As you read this in context, as the historian's writing it, what we find is, is while he's explaining this truth that we all know, we need to know to become a Christian, it says the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished 
that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. All right. Now, before I explain it, let's turn over to chapter 11, because he has to explain what's going on to the elders in Jerusalem, because they're wondering what's going on. And look over in Acts chapter 11, one chapter over, and look with me down in verse 15, as he's sort of referencing what we just read. He's telling these elders, he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remember what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think that I could oppose God? All right, so here's what I believe is going on. A lot of people say, okay, well, the Holy Spirit came on them and they hadn't been baptized in water yet. Sure, that's true. Why? Because, see, this was God demonstrating to Peter and to all and to us that he's going to accept the Gentiles into the church. Truth is, this wasn't the first time that Gentiles probably were, had already become Christians. The reality is, we find that after the persecution in this connection with Stephen, they were preaching to a lot of people. But there was still not a sense of clarity in the early church. So he sends, you know, has, Cornelius has this vision. Peter then comes and he begins to preach this lesson. What's interesting is it says, look at verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit. The truth is, he hadn't taught them everything about discipleship yet. He hadn't taught them maybe the whole, you know, lose your life to save it. He hadn't taught them the whole message. He began to speak. And I'm sure he finished sharing the whole lesson. But the Holy Spirit then comes down. And my belief is that this, they were not saved just because the Holy Spirit came down and began to enable them to speak. Just as the apostle, uh, or rather uh, the king Saul in 1 Samuel, Holy Spirit came down to him. He began to prophesy. He wasn't saved. I mean, he was trying to kill David, but the Holy Spirit was still working. So... What's going on here? This is God saying, okay, I accept the Gentiles. This is a historic, unique situation where the Holy Spirit decided, I'm going to show that I accept them. For people to say, well, you know, Holy Spirit just came on me and I got saved. I say, well, hold on a second here. Peter had to hearken back eight years earlier to when, the, when he says at the beginning in Acts 2 to find another example of when the Holy Spirit came on people in this kind of way. It was very unique. It's not something that really ever happened. In fact, this specific situation never happened exactly like that except in Acts 10. All right? That's the only time it happened. Acts 2 was somewhat similar. The Holy Spirit came on the Jews, but it wasn't totally the same then either. And you'll find no other case. So when people say, well, see, Acts 10 says the Holy Spirit came on and they weren't baptized. Say, yeah, but that's a unique example. God is allowing the Holy Spirit to come out on them so that Peter could see, wow, they are allowed to be in the kingdom. And the Holy Spirit's working on them just as he did on us. Interestingly, here's something very interesting. Keep in mind. In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit came out, the apostles were already saved. So they didn't really need the Holy Spirit to save them or anything. They're already saved because Jesus had given them the Holy Spirit inside. We find that in John 20. He says he breathed on them and told the apostles to receive the Spirit. They already had the Spirit. But the rest of humanity didn't. All right? And so the Holy Spirit coming down is usually for a unique purpose, a historical purpose. It was in Acts 2 and it is again here in Acts 10. 
it certainly doesn't take away the teaching that, well, when do we receive the Holy Spirit inside us, one with us, that we're saved? Hey, when we repent and we're baptized in the name of Jesus. Peter knew how important that was because he said he commanded them. They need to be baptized right there so they can have not only the Holy Spirit upon them in a miraculous sense to show them uh, that God's favor was upon them, that he wanted them to respond. But I put before you people right there and said, no, I'm not going to get baptized, Peter. I don't agree with you. Even if they were speaking in tongues, that didn't mean they're saved. And if they had disobeyed Peter's command, they wouldn't be right with God. So this is not, a lot of people say, see, that proves that that's not when you get the Holy Spirit. No, that's not true because, see, these are unique situations. Even Peter had to go, wow, this is like what happened to us in the beginning in Acts 2. You see that? This is important to keep in mind because a lot of people will look at Acts 10 and 11 and it confuses them. They were not saved by this outpouring Clearly, he probably hadn't even finished the whole message. It's like as he began to say it, then the Spirit came down. Clearly, you can't be saved if you don't have the full understanding of what you're doing. You make an adult decision, right? You repent, and you're choosing, I'm going to live this way, right? So the Spirit came out before all that had happened, even in Acts 10 and Acts 11. All right, so that's how you refute people who try to use that as an explanation for that's not when you get the Spirit. All right, so now, there are a lot of other questions that might be arising in your mind here. But let me hit another, another sort of manifestation of the Spirit. That is the issue of having miracles going on, which we also see the Spirit coming upon and miracles get done. And let's talk about that for a minute, all right? So first of all, when could miracles be done? If God decides to do them, right? If he wants to do a miracle and come down on Rick, you know, Garcia's head right now, and I, I'm not going to, I'm going to be like, great. But, but there's nowhere the Bible commands that, you know, he's got to try to do that. This is, you know, we want it to happen if he wants it to happen. But the Bible actually gives us the full message of how to be saved. It's inspired of the Holy Spirit. So we don't need these overt miraculous gifts. Those overt miraculous gifts, you're going to find, and we'll look at a few verses to prove this, were always done to testify and confirm God's working. All right? Now we have the Bible to confirm that, inspired by, you know, the Holy Spirit. And we got the miracles in there, and certainly we can see miracles, but they're in a different form. So I want you to look in um, Acts. Let's go to Acts chapter 6. The miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. This Sunday we want to have a guest speaker talk about how we get gifts and how to use those gifts and how to find our gifts, all right? That's what I I want this Sunday's lesson to be about. We're going to have a guest speaker uh, to preach that. Greg Moretti is going to come in. He's a doctor of, uh, of all kinds of Bible theology, and he's going to give us some great insight on this. But... I want you to see that the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit were very prevalent in the first century in a really overt way. And we find in Acts chapter 6, all right, you guys are in Acts still? We look in verse 6 where we see that they're commissioning some people for roles of leadership. And it says that they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. These are the, <coughs> the, like the six leaders that are going to help distribute the food correctly and, and help solve some, some conflict. Well, look over now in chapter 6. Look down in verse 8. Stephen, one of the guys who they laid hands on in verse 8, says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Well, why? What we're going to see is that how do you get these overt miraculous signs? Well, one way is God just gives them, to, that he puts it upon you. But then how else could it happen? It can happen... If the apostles laid their hands on you, and we find that in the text multiple times, right here, apostles laid hands on Stephen and the other six, Stephen right away is doing miraculous signs. All right, look over in, um, in chapter 8, okay, Acts chapter 8. 
Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. And we see here the overt scripture, the straight-up scripture that says, uh, you know, how we get the, how the apostles can pass on the gifts. Look in chapter 8, and uh, we'll start there in verse 6. Gives you context. It says, When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close, close attention to what he said. Incidentally, Philip went to the town of Samaria. And from a Jewish perspective, the Samaritans were half-breeds. They're half-Jews, half half-Gentiles. And they were, you know, exiled from the, the Jewish family. They were not accepted in the Jewish family. I find it interesting that you have Acts 2. The Jews were the first ones where Peter preaches to them in Jerusalem to get the message of how to be saved. And then here in Acts chapter 8, you find that they're scattering. They go to the land of Samaria, and they send Stephen, who, who's not Jewish, to this town. And he's helping Samaritans become disciples, repent, get baptized. And they're seeing these miracles that Stephen is doing. Well, remember, the apostles had laid hands on Stephen. And this is a brand new world religion. This is brand new stuff. So God always likes to confirm his truth, his brand new new covenant with overt miracles that show his presence is there. All right. And so he's doing miracles. Well, what happens is this guy named Simon sees it. He's sort of the, the rich magician guy. and He's amazed by it. And look down in verse um, look in verse chapter eight, verse uh, 18. Look down in verse 18. All right. He says, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Was he talking about the Holy Spirit inside? Couldn't have been. Because people were being baptized and the church was growing already uh, because... Philip was there, right? Or, or Stephen, rather. He was preaching. Or Philip. Yeah, I'm sorry. It was Philip. And Philip went down. So Philip was the one preaching there. And he was doing these miracles. And people were getting baptized, being saved. Holy Spirit inside. But there's another type of gift they were seeing. It was this overt ability to do, to do you know, heal a guy with, you know, who's been paralyzed his whole life, stand right up. I mean, we're talking overt miracles that would be front page of Time Magazine. Stuff that you just couldn't deny. And so... When he sees this, he's like, give me this ability. Because he realizes it's the apostles laying on of hands, giving people the ability to do these overt miracles. Those overt miracles then strengthen the faith of people uh, in the first century because they didn't have a New Testament to read. Right? They had Old Testament, and there were great miracles there. But now they got a whole new, new covenant, new teaching. And so God allowed those miracles to happen, and he allowed the apostles to have the ability to pass on those gifts. You see that? All right. So what does that mean for us? Well, look over in Romans chapter 1. Let me show you another reference to this. Uh, Jesus also gave the apostle Paul the ability to pass along miraculous gifts. Why? To strengthen the churches because they were brand new, just getting formed. They didn't have a New Testament yet to rely on and know how to live and to look at the miracles of Jesus. So he was showing them, look, this really is of God. It's going on right now. All right. And so... Paul wanted to go to Rome. Why? Because he wanted to give them some extra gifts. Look in Romans chapter 1. Look in verse 11. You guys with me? He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. All right? And he's going to pass that along by the laying on of his hands. 
just if you read Second Timothy chapter one verse six, he laid his hands on Timothy. That's what gave Timothy gifts, abilities to do things. All right. Now, what's the situation our day? Here's what I believe: that God allowed the apostles these gifts to do overt, mind-blowing, front-page Time Magazine type type gifts. God could do them even today. But no man can say, well, I, I, you know, God gave me the, you know, I, I've never seen a person with no arm grow a new arm. But in Jesus' day, that kind of stuff would happen, right? Uh, people that literally, totally dead, you know, right, Lazarus in the tomb, come out Lazarus, four days. I've not seen that kind of stuff. Now, God can do it, but he gave the men the ability to do these amazing things. The Apostle Paul raised people from the dead. People even touching Peter's, you know, gown, getting healed. Amazing stuff, just like with Jesus. He did that for a reason. However, once the apostles passed away, those overt miracles, and then the people, of course, whom they passed them on to passed away, those overt gifts also passed away. That's my conviction, right? Second century church history actually demonstrates that. Some writers comment on it. Uh, a fourth century church writer, John Christendom, talks about how he, he was having trouble understanding some of the texts of 1 Corinthians because it's talking about the use of these gifts. And he comments, and you can find this in, in, in any of the early church writers, John Christendom says, oh, I see these texts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talking about the use of the gifts are a little bit obscure because these gifts occurred in the first century, but they no longer occur in the same way now. And he even says that in a writing back in, I think it's something like 346. I was trying to uh, paste and, uh, cut and paste that for you today to show you, but it is easy to find that on, on Internet search, John Christendom and his early writings about the, the miraculous gifts. All right. Um, what you also find is that the supernatural gifts were absolutely a confirmation of the message. All right? You can see that in Acts 14, uh, verse 3. Or look, go with me and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Actually, I think it's Hebrews 1. I think that's a typo. Okay, go with me to Hebrews. All right, Hebrews. And we see how the gifts are a confirmation. Actually, no, it's correct. Hebrews 2, verse, um, verse 3 and 4. All right? It's talking about Jesus. Hebrews 2, look at this. It says, this salvation, which was announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it, to the message of Jesus and the new salvation. How? By signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He's trying to confirm, hey, what we're learning is real and right and the Bible is true. And how can we know this for sure? How can we be sure of what we're learning? He confirmed it by these overt miracles that just blew everybody's mind. All right. You guys see that? That's Hebrews 2, verse 3 and 4. All right. Michael's probably trying to find that. That reference to John Christendom up there. Thank you, Michael. All right, so you see that. Hebrews 2, verse 3 and 4 talks about that's why those miraculous gifts. Do we need those overt miraculous gifts to know that the Bible and to know that serving Jesus is right? We don't need that now, do we? Why? Because we have, we have faith in the miracles that occurred in the Word of God. All right? Um, so there's just no need for it anymore. Clearly, those signs, wonders, and miracles were marks of apostles. All right, we find that in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 12 says that those signs and miracles and wonders were a mark of an apostle of Jesus. All right? Once the apostles completed their work and laid the foundation of the church, the 
supernatural ministry was no longer needed. So do I believe that there's miracles today? Yes. Do I believe there's supernatural ability that you can, you can yourself, because of your decision, heal somebody? No. We can all pray for healing. I've been praying desperately. You know, Evelyn prayed for healing, and we saw a healing. Miracle. God does that. But she couldn't say, I have the power, and therefore, it wasn't, it wasn't her will. It was God's will in response to our prayer. But in the first century, he gave the power. If they willed it, it happened. You see what I mean? It's different than God's will. He gave them those gifts, which those miraculous abilities have ceased. All right, that's my conviction. They're not, that's why we don't see, this is a pretty committed group, but we don't see that kind of stuff that we're getting on, you know, the video and getting on TV. It would blow people's mind. Now, there are some places where they think that's going on, right? And I, I'm skeptical of that. You know, are miracles still possible? Yes. But I am very skeptical of people who think that miracles are the key to your spirituality, you know, the truth is you don't need a miracle to be saved, all right? And sadly, people who are uh, sometimes don't want to take it serious, they just want an emotional experience, look for the miracle, and they don't want to respond to truth. They just like the idea of a miracle. The miracle doesn't prove you're saved or lost. It just proves God's good, right? He wants to help you. All right. You could find miracles that are of the devil. That's the truth. He'll do them, and God will even let them happen to test you. We find that in the text. Look in, uh, I have it written down here in these notes. Look in uh, 2 Corinthians, or 2 Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. All right, so here we show that Satan can work. He's working to confuse us. And, you know, the reality is God allows it because he's testing our hearts. He'll allow some counterfeit miracles that really don't originate with him. Uh, But there are spiritual forces out there. Chapter 2, look with me in verse 9. He says, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. You see that? You know, other miracles, I mean, we know miracles happen around us, but a miracle doesn't prove necessarily truth. Um... You can read Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1 through 5, where he, he'll let people even make, he talks in there about people making prophecies that even come true, but they're not of him. And he says, I do that to test you. I want to see if you'll follow me or follow other gods. So he's testing. He'll allow us to be tested. Don't let a miracle steer you astray, right? Pray for him, for people, because, you know, we want people to change and be healed, and we want more servants. But what God's interested in is us obeying the word of God. All right. The word is sufficient for anyone with a pure heart. And, uh, you know, he says in Luke 16 that if they won't listen to the word, they won't even listen if somebody rises from the dead right in front of them. Right. Parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus said, send send somebody back to tell my brothers. He listen, they won't believe the words of Moses. They ain't going to believe it. Even if somebody rises from the dead right in front of them. Right. They won't believe. So how do we receive the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is received. At our baptism, we're baptized in the Spirit at our water baptism. That's baptism in the Spirit, all right? 
So if anyone says, you know, the scripture teaches Jesus baptizes, yes. The Holy Spirit came upon the whole earth, sort of an outpouring. But we are baptized in the Spirit, sort of one with the Spirit at our baptism through repentance and commitment to Jesus in the water, right? We die and come up to a new life. That is both born of water and the Spirit. That is being baptized in the Spirit, which all of us that are true Christians, true disciples, that's what happens to us. That's what we want for everybody in this city and on this earth. Amen? So I hope that helped you guys. If you have more questions, feel free to email. uh, Ask one another. Ask other smart people about this stuff. And I know it's very complex. Okay. There are a lot of people that have a lot of views on this. So uh, keep growing. Ask Don. He knows all about this. He knows it inside now. Okay, let's go to our D groups. Thank you guys. Have a great night.